through 22 this morning. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, I write, the words of the amen, the faithful, and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Each day in my workplace, between 7 and 7.30 in the morning, there will be people in the break room pouring their first cup of coffee for the day, and about 30 minutes later, you can expect pretty much the same people back there waiting their turn to use the microwave to place their half-full or their nearly empty mug in the microwave. Why? Because their drink, while not cold, is simply not hot enough. They're lukewarm. Now, if you visit any coffee shop, you'll find in their menu offerings various choices of hot or cold beverages. I doubt very much that you will find in the menu either lukewarm coffee or lukewarm tea because a great majority of us, if not all of us, find lukewarm beverages unappetizing so much so that if we can't cool it or heat it, we'd rather pour it into the sink than drink it. And just yesterday, I checked with our brother John Luther, and as of yesterday, he does not have a secret menu in his cafe containing lukewarm tea or lukewarm coffee. So he's still not serving that there. In today's passage, we see that people's opinion of lukewarm drinks was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. It's still distasteful. And as was read by Jean, being lukewarm is how the Lord described the church that we'll be talking about today, the church at Laodicea. They are lukewarm to the point of disgusting to the Lord. But, but before we get into the passage itself, I'd like to give some background on the city of Laodicea. And this is information that will hopefully help us appreciate and understand some of the language that the Lord uses, especially the metaphors. In mentioning many of these facts or factoids, I'm putting my faith in the writings of historians. And as far as possible, I try to cite things that more than a couple of sources agreed on. Well, first of all, where is Laodicea? Laodicea, as well as the six other churches in Revelation, is located in a peninsula between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, known as Asia Minor. Now, the, the area is now modern-day Turkey. On the screen, Laodicea, uh, its location is shown relative to the six other churches in Revelation. And you'll note that it is close to Colossae which is about 10 miles southeast. Now, the church at Colossae, of course, is the one that the Apostle Paul wrote to in one of his letters. Ephesus is about 100 miles to the west, 
and Philadelphia is about 45 miles northwest. Now this map shows the principal Roman roads at the time. There are several mountain ranges in the vicinity, and Laodicea is located in a valley known as the Lycus River Valley. And people obviously would want to travel through a valley then cross a mountain. So the city is along a primary uh, trade route between cities to its east and to its west. Now out of the east came the great camel caravans that passed through Laodicea and onto cities west or north of it, including the six other churches in Revelation. And in ancient times, whenever a city is along a trade route, it becomes significant. So what do we know about Laodicea and what made it significant during its time? Well, one thing we do know based on archaeological studies of ruins is that one of the city's challenges is its water supply. As the population of the city grew, the water from nearby streams and rivers were inadequate. And furthermore, the nearby rivers, the Lycus and the Meander, were too dirty. And they often dried up during the dry season. And nearby hot springs were full of chemicals and often unfit for domestic use. So water had to be brought into the city from a distant spring. And this was accomplished by building an underground aqueduct. Now, if you're a military history buff, you might be quick to see this as a major military weakness. If any army wants to conquer the city, all it needs to do is find the aqueduct, seal it, and wait until the city had no water, and you will have a successful siege of the city with very little need for direct confrontation. And so they built their water supply pipes underground, hoping that no one bent on conquest will be able to find it. But as it turns out, the source of the water they brought in was also charged with impurities, mainly dissolved minerals. In fact, it was so heavy with those minerals that a lot of it was deposited in the pipes and eventually clogged the pipes. This is a picture of the pipes as they are today. You can see the thick deposits of calcium carbonate so that the pipes were almost but not completely clogged. The bottom line is the water supply they had was impure. And so they can appreciate and understand the Lord's description of disgusting water fit to be spat out of one's mouth. Now I did mention that Laodicea was along an east-west trade route, and so it's easy to guess that it's sig significant from a commercial standpoint. And being on a trade route, large money transactions took place there, that it became a banking center for travelers who need a place for their funds. Now this became a source of the city's prosperity. In fact, it became so prosperous that historians tell us that when an earthquake destroyed the city during the time of Emperor Nero, Rome offered assistance, but the officials of the city declined, saying they had plenty of funds for them to rebuild on their own. Now, can you imagine having a hurricane like Matthew cut the path of destruction through our state and our governor declaring a state of emergency and then refusing any assistance from the federal government saying, don't worry about us, we can take care of ourselves. We have to have a lot in our state coffers to do that. And that's how the Laodiceans viewed themselves, which means they understood what the Lord meant when he said to them in the letter, for you say, I'm rich, I'm, I've prospered, and I need nothing. And monetarily, they were wealthy. I'd like a couple, uh, to mention a couple more things on the city's industries that had significance in the letter sent to them. First, Laodicea 
had a wool industry. And its major product was a soft, glossy black wool used for clothing and for carpets. It was exported from the area and became another source of the city's revenue. Now, Laodicea was also known for a medical school that developed an eye salve that people from that general region would procure if they had an eye ailment. And uh, apparently, this eye salve was medically advanced for its time, and people used it to bring some measure of comfort or healing. When we go through the letter in greater detail, we'll see a bit of reference to these facts. The city of Laodicea no longer exists today. It's a deserted place. Between 1092 and 1110 AD, the city was reportedly attacked by invading Turks and finally destroyed in 16, I'm sorry, 1161, during which time the Christian population of that city began to leave. Now, little is known of the early Christianity there, although there are records of the local churches suffering persecution during the 2nd to the 4th century, along with the other, ch- uh, that's gone, the other churches in Asia Minor. It's also known that Laodicea was the meeting place of a church council from 363 to 364 AD, during which there were early discussions of what books to include in the canon of Scripture. So it would seem that the church had a presence at least three centuries after John's letter was written. Now, I mentioned a while ago that the city of Colossae is only 10 miles from Laodicea, so it's not surprising that the only other place in Scripture where Laodicea is mentioned is in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And the way the church of Laodicea was mentioned in that letter, it sounds like Paul had similar concerns for both churches. He mentions Laodicea in chapter 2, verse 1, and three more times in closing his letter to the Colossians. In fact, in chapter 4, verses 12 to 16 of Paul's letter to the Colossians. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it. It says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as well as Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Unquote. Paul wanted his letter to the Colossians to be read to the Laodiceans. And apparently, there was a letter to the Laodicea that Paul wanted read at Colossae. But something that is noteworthy in Paul's letter to the Colossians is his mention of the brothers at Laodicea and of a church that meets in the house of a woman named Nympha. I think this is significant because some theologians are convinced that Laodicea is a false church because uh, it's devoid of believers because of the severity of Christ's words. But Paul's reference to brothers in the church seemed to indicate otherwise. But it's also worth noting that Revelation was written about 95 AD, and Paul's letter to the Colossians in 62 AD, a difference of 33 years. 
So it's also possible that the Laodicean church declined in spiritual health during those 33 years in between. Now, a few more observations before we go to today's passage. Of the first six churches that have been covered so far from this pulpit, only two of them received no condemnation from the Lord. Lord, the church at Smyrna and the church at Philadelphia. Three others, Ephesus, Pergamum, and Thyatira, received a mixture of commendation and condemnation. Sardis and Laodicea are the two that the Lord had nothing good to say about. And thinking back on those who preached on these churches in the past few weeks, I realized that Tom assigned the bad churches to elders. When he gets back, maybe I'll mention this to him just to make sure there's no conspiracy here. It seems to me that any self-respecting church body who knows their scripture will not name themselves after Laodicea. So I didn't think that there would be a single church in the United States named after Laodicea. But I credit our sister, Lauren Horn, which is there, who did a quick search on the internet and found one that called themselves the Laodicean Church of God. I was really surprised. And while I hesitate to publicly pass judgment on the doctrinal soundness of another church, if one were to look at the content in their website, it's not unreasonable to assume that the orthodoxy of this church is suspect. At any rate, as far as I can tell, only this one church out of thousands dared to name themselves after Laodicea. That's not surprising because it would be like parents naming their son Adolf or their daughter Jezebel, as was pointed out by our brother Edgar Aponte when he preached on Thyatira. You give those names to pets, perhaps, but, but not to kids. And even giving those names to pets sounds like a sick idea. Anyway, with that background information, okay, calm, calm down. With that back. With that background information, let's consider our passage for today. In verse 14, we read, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, just like in the other letters, the Lord Jesus begins by identifying himself. And to Laodicea, he uses the names the Amen, the faithful and true witness, in the beginning of God's creation. Let's consider each of these. The first identification, the Amen, is from the Hebrew word used to affirm the truth of a statement. Nowadays, we say Amen, or Amen, to mean either I agree or true. And some of our younger people might say, true that. The word is also spoken at the beginning of significant statements, and it's usually translate, translated in the Bible, you'll see them, verily, verily, or truly, truly. So when the Lord identifies himself as the Amen, he's in effect saying, I'm the truth. Of course, this is not the first time the Lord identifies himself as such. I'm sure you recall John 14, 6, when he declared, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, secondly, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. And he's just reiterating his claim that whatever he says um, is true. And he's completely trustworthy. What he's saying to the Laodicean church is that he knows what he's talking about. And if he gives an assessment of the state of the church, 
they can be sure it is absolutely accurate. In fact, Jesus is the embodiment of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Um, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Or said another way, For all the promises of God find their amen in Him. All the promises of God made to man to show mercy and grace and to provide hope for eternal life were fulfilled in the person and atoning work of the Lord Jesus. He is indeed the Amen. Now the last self-identification made by the Lord is this, the beginning of God's creation. Now several biblical scholars believe that one of the heresies developing in that part of the world during this time was the belief that Jesus was not God, that he was just a created being, albeit a super being, if you will, but not God. In later centuries, this heresy became known as Arianism and a similar one known as Adoptionism. Scholars further believe that the Apostle Paul is dealing with this matter in his letter to the Colossians. And so we can reasonably assume that this false teaching had reached the Laodicean church as well. So this may very well be what the Lord is addressing when he identifies himself the way he did. Unfortunately, English translations can be ambiguous. When he says that he is the beginning of God's creation, he's not saying that he was the first created being. Rather, he's saying that he is the beginner, the originator of all creation. It's the same idea when he identified himself to John in Revelation 1, when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And again in Revelation 22 when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John, the Apostle John, in his gospel, established the identity of Christ from the start when he wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Lord made it clear to the Laodiceans that they are hearing from the embodiment of truth and the preeminent creator of everything. Now, we come to the first condemnation the Lord says to the church. Verses 15 to 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is very strong language. Not something any of us will ever want to hear from Jesus. Laodicea just made him sick. Now, earlier, I spoke of the water that had to be piped into the city, water from a hot spring that was impure and likely lukewarm by the time it reached the community. So the idea of putting lukewarm, sickening water in one's mouth is not unfamiliar to the Laodiceans. So it behooves us to ask, what does being lukewarm mean? What does it mean as an, at an individual and a corporate level? Now, I must admit that in preparing for this sermon, I thought of equating the terms hot and cold that Jesus used with two extreme spiritual states. In one extreme, one who is spiritually hot is uh, someone with great zeal and love for the Lord. And in the other extreme is one who is spiritually cold. That is someone devoid of spiritual life. Then I realized a problem with that kind of equivalence. Jesus commended both spiritual states. 
but being devoid of spiritual life goes against everything else that Scripture says with regard to what God desires for us. And so I think the best way to look at this is not to over-spiritualize the, the term lukewarm and just consider that Jesus used the term primarily to express how nauseating their current spiritual state is. And what is their current spiritual state? Well, Jesus describes it in the next verse, verse 17. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now consider the words Christ used. Rich, prosperous, not needing anything. Their problem is spiritual self-sufficiency. And what do I mean by that? Well, simply put, spiritual self-sufficiency is when we put our faith primarily in the gifts that each of us have been given to live the Christian life, whether we're talking about talents, abilities, or material possessions. We rely on our gifts and at the same time forget that we need God's grace and strength to live in a manner pleasing to Him. Of course, it begs the question, how can one know if one is spiritually self-sufficient? Well, it's hard to give a very specific answer to that question. But I dare say that in some cases, one's spiritual self-sufficiency can be so blatant, so obvious, that it can be seen by others. And if we're to be honest, we can even see it in ourselves. Usually it's accompanied by pride, thinking of ourselves more highly than in we ought to, as stated in Romans 12.3. But in a other cases, it's not as easy to see. When do I stop relying on God and start relying on myself? I, has, I hesitate to give an airtight method for diagnosing this. But I promise we will come back to this when we talk about personal applications. And while I do not promise to give some form of spiritual diagnostic tool, I will suggest a way we can minimize or prevent spiritual self-sufficiency. Now, I mentioned earlier that Laodicea was the banking center reaping the benefits of being along a trade route. But the irony is that in their material prosperity, they were unaware of their impoverished spiritual condition. Now, Jesus, who introduced himself in the beginning as the true and faithful witness, correctly assesses their spiritual poverty and points it out to them. They didn't even know they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So it's worth noting that the Lord's descriptions of poverty, blindness, and nakedness were direct attacks on their sources of confidence and pride. Their wealth, the eye salve that they produced, and the black wool that was so popular. They have forgotten their dependence on God, became so arrogant and have taken pride in their own moral goodness. So in verse 18, he tells them, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so you may see. So the Lord displays tremendous grace with his words here. He found the Laodicean church sickening, and he could have just executed them with one word. But in his grace, his graciousness compelled him to give counsel and extend an invitation to a church full of arrogant, self-sufficient people that made him sick. In his counsel... He invites them to buy from him. And that invitation to buy is the same invitation extended by God in Isaiah 55 when he said, 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, a similar invitation is extended in Revelation 22, 17, where it's written, And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Now, in our society, if you have no money, you can't buy anything. In fact, the very definition of buying involves some sort of payment. But in God's economy, we don't and can't bring money to buy from Him what we really need. God's invitation is to bring Him nothing more than our wretched condition. And what makes this invitation even more generous is that even our ability to come to Him in faith and repentance is from Him. Now, it's, it's true that God... Is a generous God. But let's not forget that what He offers us without cost on our part was really paid for, just not by us. Let me say something that at first might sound heretical. What if I said that our salvation is actually obtained by works and good deeds? It is. But it's by the work and deeds of Christ, not by us. As the old hymn goes, Jesus paid it all. He was the one who paid for what we needed. We are in desperate need to be reconciled with our Creator, but we can't purchase the privilege of being reunited with Him. But Jesus paid it all and bids us to heed His invitation to come and put our faith in Him and His finished work. So the invitation to buy, my friends, is the gospel message. For the non-Christian, there is life in heeding Jesus' invitation. And for the Christian, the same message gives refreshment and nourishment for the soul. In the midst of this condemning letter, the gospel provides tremendous hope. Moving on to the next verse, verse 19. This is what the Lord says. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Again, this opens up the question of whether or not Jesus is speaking to believers or unbelievers. Because in Hebrew, Hebrews 12.6 it says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. And that verse, based on its context, is talking about believers. But we also have to remember that God extends his love to the unsaved, albeit in a different sense. Theologians make a distinction between what is termed the benevolent love of God which he extends to believers and unbelievers alike, and his salvific love, which is exclusively for the saved. When the phrase God's love is used in Scripture, the immediate context, as well as what we know from the rest of Scripture, should help us understand it correctly. For example, in the first part of John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. It doesn't mean God loves all the world because everyone in the world is saved. In this example, the verse is talking about God's benevolent love for believers and unbelievers alike. So, is he speaking to believers or unbelievers in verse 19? I think it's to both. Remember, this is a letter to the church. And Scripture tells us that in Christendom, and presumably in every church, there are wheat and there are tares. There are believers and there are unbelievers. But the response, the call to repent is ultimately at an individual level. 
The next verse, verse 20. Again, Jesus continues with his invitation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him, eat with him, and he with me. Again, he shows his abundant mercy and compassion. He could have easily said, Behold, I'm about to break down the door and destroy all of you who make me sick. No. Instead, he further invites the people in the church. Now at this point, I'd like to admit that in the past, I've used this verse as part of my arsenal of passages when sharing the gospel with someone. I've told people that if they want to become a Christian, they should open the door of their heart and let Christ in. Anybody here done that? Uh, I've since come to the realization that from a theological standpoint, I may have over-spiritualized the verse to the point where I'm making it say what it's not saying. I, I think there's a lesson here for all of us. When it comes to interpreting scripture, we should be careful in handling figures of speech contained in verses such as this, precisely because of the danger of misrepresenting what the text is saying. May I humbly propose another way of looking at this verse. For believers, he's inviting them to renew the fellowship that they claim to have with Christ, but in reality have nearly lost. It's an invitation to cast off what the Lord condemned, which is self-sufficiency, and return to their dependence on Him. Now I mentioned that there are likely believers, or I'm sorry, there are likely unbelievers in their midst, people who profess to know Christ but never really and truly knew Him. For them, this invitation, this call, would be to make their profession genuine. The response to the call is again at an individual level. If an individual in that church repents, the Lord says he will dine with that individual. Sharing a meal together has always been a point of fellowship. And that is what Christ is promising for the repentance. I just brought to mind the lunch we'll be having next week. So, we plug there. That's not all. In verse 21, he continues. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's very hard to wrap our minds around the supreme dignity that comes with his promise. What Jesus is saying is that as he was given all authority in heaven and on earth, so will he grant that authority to those who conquers or overcomes. That is, the believer. We cannot even begin to fathom this tremendous promise. Get this. He's promising his followers that they will sit on his throne, meaning they will have the authority to rule and reign and judge the world. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Luke 22, 29-30, when he said, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and assigned to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Unquote. Words fail us in describing the rich and amazing nature of this promise. It shouldn't surprise us because it's written in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, I can imagine a lot, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
and the letter concludes the same way that the letters to the other churches end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So, given that, as a church body, what can we glean from this letter to the Laodiceans? Here's a church populated by believers whose arrogant self-sufficiency made Jesus sick. We've heard the warnings, and they are disconcerting to say the least. But those warnings weren't tempered by the Lord's compassionate words, inviting people to repent in order to restore their fellowship with Him. But even though the call is for the church to repent, it all comes down, as I mentioned earlier, to an individual's response. The church's collective repentance is not necessarily each individual member's repentance. So, as individuals, let's consider some ways we can respond to this word. There's so much we can learn from this sobering yet rich letter. And some of them have already been covered in the previous six churches. So, keeping in mind that growth in Christ's likeness is for the most part, it happens in small increments. In the daily victories we have in our battle against sin, I would like to mention four areas that, I can, that we can all grow in. Four areas. I could do more, but let me... Just focus on four. First of all, we need to fight the temptation to directly correlate our life situations with our standing before God. That's a mouthful, so I will repeat it. We need to fight the temptation to directly correlate our life situations with our standing before God. I say that we need to fight the temptation to think this way. Because I'm confident that we've been exposed to enough correct theology to know that where we are in life and our standing before God don't have a direct one-to-one relationship. Yet I know from personal experience that there are times, perhaps more than I would care to admit, that I'm prone to think that way. Especially when my family experiences wave after wave of events that try our spirits. Some of us may be struggling with physical ailments, financial difficulties, fractured relationships, wayward children, and the list goes on and on. And we might think, what have I done to deserve this? Now, it's true that some of our difficulties could be consequences of our sin, but not always. Neither is it true the other way. If life's circumstances are going well, It does not necessarily mean things are right in the spiritual realm. The Laodiceans thought that because they had material wealth, they were in favor with God. One might say they were believers of an early form of prosperity gospel. Mercifully, Jesus brought them the unvarnished truth that they needed to hear. And given that we we are a prosperous people, compared to 90% of the world's population, we should be careful not to let material prosperity equate to, at least in our minds, not let it equate to a good standing before God, just as the Laodiceans did. Second, we should cultivate the humility to be subjected to a spiritual checkup. Let me repeat that. We should cultivate the humility to be subjected to a spiritual checkup. Every beginning of the year, we're challenged by our pastor to ask the question, Are there signs that I love Christ more now than I did a year ago? That's not an easy question to answer. But it is an important one because it does allow us to check whether we are growing spiritually or not. And if we're not, it could be because there are besetting sins or misplaced priorities 
that are choking us, stunting our growth. It could be a symptom of spiritual laziness. Or worse, there might not even be spiritual life present. To check ourselves or to have someone check us requires a great deal of humility on our part. Because it is a time when the darkest corners of our lives are exposed. And even if the exposure of those dark places is just to ourselves, it's not easy. But you probably know people who have gone through life sincerely thinking that they are Christ followers, not realizing they are not. Then God brings along somebody who challenges them, and he uses that encounter to open their eyes and to see their spiritual state, and that leads them to repentance. The Laodiceans did not invite Christ to assess them spiritually and would have carried on with darkness in their souls unless Christ intervenes. And mercifully, that's exactly what he did. And like the Laodiceans, we need that kind of intervention. So let's develop a humility that makes us willing to invite a mature brother or sister who loves and knows us enough to honestly tell us what we need to hear. And let us be thankful for God's grace displayed through people like them. Third, we need to be willing to step out of our spiritual comfort zone. Let me repeat that. We need to be willing to step out of our spiritual comfort zone. Assuming spiritual laziness is not the problem and we are involved in the church in one form or another, sometimes spiritual self-sufficiency can set in when we find an area of service that we're comfortable in. We may not even be aware of its onset. May I humbly propose that we be willing to stretch ourselves beyond what we perceive to be the limits of our talents and gifts? And by that, I'm not suggesting taking quantum leaps. I'm not proposing doing something like volunteering to teach, teach adult Sunday school when, we, when the mere thought of standing before a group of people will make us faint. I'm not suggesting that. No, I propose starting off with things that are comf- uncomfortable yet doable. If you're shy or uncomfortable speaking to a person one-on-one, step out of your comfort zone and approach and talk to somebody here on a Sunday morning. If you don't, if you don't think you have the right words to share the gospel clearly, ask a brother or sister to help you. Practice with them and get their input. Now, I can give more examples. And I realize that to some, these suggestions that I just mentioned are too small. But I can see how they can be big to others. But the idea is to start wherever you are spiritually. And the point in venturing into new areas of, of relationships or ministry is to bring us to a place where we are humbled in our insufficiency so that we will go to the Lord and ask for His strength. In any particular spiritual endeavor, we cannot be humble and self-sufficient at the same time. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Fourth and last, realize that wherever we are spiritually, we need the gospel. Let me repeat that. Wherever we are spiritually, We need the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, you will never outgrow your need to hear the gospel message. You've heard it time and again from this pulpit and from other places. 
that you need to constantly remind yourself of the truth contained in it. And part of that truth is our utter dependence on Christ to overcome sin and to please God. The gospel does not just usher in the beginning of new life in God's family, but it's essential to living the Christian life. If we forget that, we will become self-sufficient, self-righteous, and arrogant, and live our lives in a manner just like the Laodiceans did. And something we don't ever want to hear is our Lord describing our spiritual condition as sickening. So sickening that he wants to spit us out of his mouth. So treasure the gospel. Treasure the gospel. Meditate on its truth. If you are here and you know that you have not embraced the claims of Christ, I pray that God will open your eyes to the life-giving treasures that can only be found in the gospel. I'm glad and grateful that you're here this morning. There are no accidents with God, and He ordained that you be here this morning and your mind be exposed to His truth. I pray that He moves that truth from your mind to your heart, heart, and you realize what a wonderful God your Creator is and who He is who's calling you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We do have a gracious God who's abundant in mercy, but He's also a holy God who calls us to be holy. His word is true and trustworthy. It imparts true knowledge and it comforts us. And we should thank him. But the word also convicts and we should repent as he calls us to do. So we'll spend the next couple of minutes as a body being still before him to allow each of us to privately commune with him in response to his word. Let's go to him now and Ray will close us at an appropriate time.